0: And I am, I am, I am optimistic. I hit my head against brick walls, the whole like everybody else, I get frustrated. But I think the change is happening. And, and I just see the shifts, these incremental shifts, and I am quite positive.
1: Hello, my name is Matthew Sortino, and welcome to Moments of Clarity. Today I am speaking to Maria Simonelli. Maria is an all-rounder in every sense of the word. She is an artist, author, facilitator, educator, community builder, mentor, sustainability advocate, Churchill Fellowship Award recipient, digital changemaker, creative catalyst, and a whole lot more. Maria spent many years working with individuals and organisations to create vibrant and sustainable communities. She has worked for government, NGOs, corporations, and not-for-profits in a number of roles around sustainability. She has also founded and created Sweet Spot Careers, which was also her first book, Project Reclaim and The Creative Catalyst. Maria has just released her three-book series, The Creative Advantage, how the intersection of science and creativity reveals life's ultimate advantage, which aims to build creative capacity and help individuals and organizations focus on the task at hand to affect local and global change. Maria is a tremendous source of knowledge and experience and has committed herself to sharing that with others through a very unique and very important skill set. If you want to find out more about Maria, visit mariasimonelli.com or follow the links in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Moments of Clarity, and now without further delay, I bring you Maria Simonelli. Maria, welcome to Moments of Clarity.
0: Thank you. Lovely to be here.
1: Brilliant to have you. Uh, To get started today, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, uh, and what you're doing at the moment? Just a little bit of a background, professional and personal, if you can
0: so I'm at that wonderful stage of my life where I'm almost sixty, and I don't give a shit anymore. I can, I'm in that honestly at that place where I'm really privileged to be able to do things that I really want to do that I think is going to make a difference. And I know that this this podcast is very much about uh, matching values and and thinking about how we actually enact what we'd like to do in our lives and. I'm at that space now where I can do that. And that means that I can be very strong on the environmental advocacy that I have been, that's been a theme in my life from day one. So very strong on climate change issues. And, in fact, I think everything else is weaves around that. If you look at there's a thread. The art practice I have is very much about promoting reuse of, of items that would have normally gone to the waste stream, or promoting renewable energy, for example, and then I have this side project that's turned into a consultancy, which is about creativity and problem solving, and the driver for that is very much about we need different ways of problem solving because we are not dealing with the incredibly important things that we need to be dealing with, and we're not. Using the creative, innovative ways of working through ideas. So that now weaves itself into this. Plus I'm a trainer and a facilitator, so I'm a talker and I'm a hands-on type person. So that sort of was all moulding itself into a job, <laughs> believe it or not, and and a way of being, I think, too. So, yeah, so I'm doing a lot of things and I'm enjoying it. <laughs>
1: Fantastic. And I love that. You you mentioned nearly 60 and don't give a shit anymore. But in a way, you probably give a shit more than ever about the world around you and how to make a difference. At what stage in your life did you shift from maybe worrying about what other people thought or the career, the cash, whatever it might have been, to then moving towards just saying, look, I'm going to be who I am and do what I think needs to be done to make this world a better place and make myself feel more fulfilled? Was there a stage or a a shift that you can remember or a few stories that you'd like to tell?
0: Absolutely. There was a day when it happened. But I must admit, also, I've been incredibly privileged. I, I don't take anything for granted. I was born into a family that enabled me to be the way I am and migrant parents who just instilled incredible values without beating me over the head with it. So I am totally, totally acknowledge that I'm, I mean, what's that lovely saying, I'm standing on the shoulders of the people before me, the women in my family, the very strong women in my family. Um, but there was a day, I was in New York on September 11, and I saw two buildings go down and... A lot of people die and I was turning 40 that year and I was embraced by an Australian family that live in New Jersey and we were supposed to be catching up. I was there. I was actually on a, this sounds like I'm boasting, but anyway, I was on a scholarship program. I was doing a Churchill, going around the world and I was in New York having a, a week's break and September 11 happened and I was supposed to be trying to catch up with these friends in New Jersey and we were crossing paths and all that. Anyways, you know, we all know what happened on that Tuesday. They came and got me on the Saturday morning because all the roads closed down and the port closed down and I was stuck in New York for four days in this extraordinary period. I still remember every moment of it. It was quite extraordinary. And then they came and got me or rescued me on the Saturday morning and there was no flights during that period. So I was in their beautiful home for about two weeks until I could get out and I went to London straight after it. And I saw the best and the worst in people. I really did. I just saw the craziness that was going on. You see it in these moments of crisis. You see, you know, the first responders during a fire in Australia. You see the nurses during a COVID pandemic. You see the doctors hanging in there trying to do their best in, you know, New York and some of those hospitals where you're just seeing the most horrible things happening. Thank Christ that didn't happen here. And that was the day I thought I am never wasting another minute (laughs) on I'm I'm here for a reason I don't know what it is but I'm not wasting any time and so I started to make I think it's a bit of that midlife stuff too that you you become a bit wiser you don't really care as much about certain things you know it really doesn't matter in the end don't don't sweat the small stuff all that and so I think it was it all came together in this you know convoluted way but um it all converged if you like Um, But certainly that was the day I remember very clearly thinking, I'm here for a reason. And it was almost, you know, when I came back, probably about six weeks later, I got back to Australia. And of course, everyone was happy to see me. And I was lucky to be in a family that didn't stress, uh, sorry, they stressed, but they didn't keep asking me what had happened. You know, I didn't have to relive it every five minutes so i just went on in my life and i and there was a couple of things that happened within that next 12 months the first time we went back overseas i was working for a nonprofit and we took a group of our staff overseas to south africa for the world sustainability conference and i remember feeling incredibly stressed cuz we were on a plane <laughs> And I hadn't realized I'd, you know, I'd absorbed a lot of this stress. Mm. And I was responsible for these young people. I oh, mean they're all in their twenties and but I was I felt responsible for them and, and we were in this safety zone because it was Cape Town, you know, oh, sorry, Johannesburg, and there were people with guns. And I remember thinking, what the fr-? and and coming back and actually going and having some counseling after that because I had was reliving a lot of this stuff from New York and I thought oh my god I haven't actually got through this cleanly have I but so that was an interesting time for me so I think in terms of the days it was certainly being in that place at that time but then going back to what I was saying before it was probably the best place to be because it was I could see what was actually happening and a lot of the stories when I got back were were false, you know, people had interpreted certain things or and we never actually saw a lot of the footage in New York that you guys saw here. You know, some really horrible things that you guys saw, people falling out of windows and all. Mm. They had self-monitored, believe it or not, in New York, and we weren't seeing some of that stuff. And then I saw it here and I thought, oh my God. So that was probably embedding itself in the, you know, the long-term memory. But yeah, I think that was that time when yeah, you just realise what's important. And sometimes you get you get that from a crisis, don't you? And if you're lucky enough, you survive it and you learn from it and,
1: yeah. You, you mentioned that you've changed uh, from that day. What, what was life like prior to September 11 in New York?
0: I was one of those kids that was always good at drawing and good at art. In secondary school, I was a very average student, but I was good at art. I got to year 11. And I didn't want to do art anymore because I was—I didn't feel like I was good enough. I remember going to something, must have been some school exhibition or something, and thinking, "Crackies, I'm not that good." And so I swapped over and did biology and geography. And best thing I did because I, that led me to environmental science and it was a double degree in environmental science, you know, history, sorry, um, biology, geography, physics, chem, that type of stuff, and it was one of the first courses where they had an environmental theme to it, a sustainability theme to it, even though we weren't using that language at that stage, and it was a double degree, so I did a dip at the same time, and that got me into teaching, got me into education. Eventually, by about my mid-20s, I was working in um, conservation, very much wanted to embed myself in urban issues climate change was starting to be it was called the greenhouse effect then it was starting to be talked about and I you know I was just really just getting myself into networks and um, environmental education associations doing a lot of freebies the networking was fantastic I was young had a lot of energy and more and more started to see how we needed to embed sustainability into the, the way that we lived. And it's interesting because I'm Italian background. So my you know my father was a farmer, you know, we had the whole backyard was of, you know, I know they joke about this, but it was true it was a vegetable patch with you know, chickens and eggs and, you know, he'd breed rabbits and we'd have he'd tell me it was chicken but it was actually rabbit when we were eating it. I had no, <laughs> idea, no idea what it was. Um, mum was a seamstress, you know, would make all our clothes and, you know, it what really was that sort of... What do you call it? Like an agrarian little farm, really. And but you learn that if you don't put fertilizer back into the soil, the lettuces will not grow. If you don't treat the animals well, they'll get upset with you. You know, your chickens won't lay eggs if you yell at them, will they? You know. And so you learn subtly um that you have to give back to the earth, and you can't you you don't take advantage of it. So that was that an embedded thing throughout my life, and then. I just ended up just finding these roles so I did a lot of work with state and local governments working in environmental issues there was a a lot of work around in those days it's it's, you know and you could do these one-year contracts and you know get embedded in different different aspects of environmental sustainability I went overseas and i Did that sort of thing. I had to go overseas. I'd done a lot of short trips, you know, walking in Nepal and things like that. My brother was in New Guinea working and I went and visited him a couple of times. I'd done all those, but I hadn't done the backpacking trip. And I thought, well, I've got to do it before I turn 30. And I remember the week before I left, a friend of mine in the Commonwealth was going on maternity leave and she said, go for this role, you know, just do it for 12 months. And I said, I'm going overseas, darling. I don't want to go to Canberra. Anyway, I went for the role. They paid for me to go to Canberra, believe it or not. So I went and had the interview and left to go overseas, thinking I was going to be there forever. And six months later, my mum gets this letter. I was in, I think I was in Italy. My mum gets this letter saying I've got a job in Canberra if I want it. And I said, "You sure you're reading it?" The no, English wasn't the best. <laughs> She wasn't great at reading yeah. English. And she's no, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know what I'm reading. You know, anyway, they had offered me a job and I thought, well, I'll go back to Canberra. I'd run out of money. I'll go to Canberra, st- spend a year there. And I end up being there, well, being on the payroll for 10 years. And it was probably one of the most formidable places. It was, it was one of those sliding door moments. I actually understood how the world worked, how politics worked. Um, I went through a Labor government and a Liberal government, so I got to see how both sides of the spectrum work. I got in it as a middle manager and then went up a little bit further into senior management, so I had a bit of authority and I could sort of manage to be involved with new policy proposals and direct some things we were dealing with huge sums of money like it was really formidable for me a really strong period of understanding that we could actually make a difference and seeing the some of that stuff and we're talking over 20 years ago now is still still exists you know still still is making a difference I think so that was really really strong for me and but it was too, I think that thing with, with one of those types of careers with the public sector is you basically you got to just get, keep moving up and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to go back into community and local government and I ended up getting a job back in, in Melbourne after 10 years of being in Canberra and I've got to say it was good fun. I got to travel a lot and went all around Australia, meeting people, doing community, like community from the point of view of facilitation type work great time really very thankful of that period with Commonwealth particularly when everyone slags off at Canberra and you know Canberra's done this and Canberra said this and well no Canberra didn't actually say that it was a couple of people in Parliament House that said that anyway went off and came back to Melbourne and worked uh, for 10 years with an international local government sorry it's an international non-profit environmental association that works with local government and community, all in environmental work, and it was with a lot of climate change work and a lot of water conservation work and um, procurement work, how do you, you know, work well by thinking about what you're buying, some really, for, really again, quite strong stuff, um, group called ICLEE, which is still around internationally and, again, got to travel and go off to Cape Town and America and Europe, fantastic time, but it was full on. You know, like it was full on and I think part of it also was we had to fundraise and we had to bring in millions of dollars a year just to keep our organisation running and that wears you out. It really mm. does wear you out. So I got sort of got to the point where I thought I'd been there 10 years. Um, I had two scholarships by that stage. I had a Churchill scholarship and I got a Commonwealth scholarship and I was very interested in research and diving deep into subjects by by interviewing and talking to people a little bit like you,
1: really.
0: Um, so really getting that understanding from a non-policy perspective, if you like, and that led me back to Melbourne and thinking about how I can do that in a sort of a different way, if you like. And that then, as I say, coincided with turning 40 and being in the US and coming back, and I hung in, in that area for a bit longer but that again then coincided with some changes personally in my family life um my mum ended up getting quite ill she ended up getting dementia so that set me on a different path I think I was sort of seeing her decline and not knowing it was you know at the beginning it was you don't know whether you don't really know what decline is you know is it is it just old age is she forgetful and it ended up Years later, being diagnosed as dementia, so I went through a period where I was just taking some one-year contracts because I wasn't quite sure what was going to happen. I didn't want to com- overcommit because I'm, you know, you can see I've almost ten years in the Commonwealth, ten years with one nonprofit. I I hang in there. I'm a bit loyal. I like to sort of help make sure something grows and can develop. But I was trying to work out with the family what are we going to do? And Mum had said very very strongly she wanted to be in her own home. Yeah. and so it confronts you how do you do that unless you move back home how do you do that so that was a period of me trying to get my head around how do i be a good daughter how do i earn a living how do i keep my relationships going like how do you do this and that that was a really interesting time but what it ended up becoming i guess was learning going back to my the thing i knew made me feel good which was art so i ended up Taking on uh, postgraduate visual arts and loving that and diving into sculpture, um, it ended up me just testing myself in different ways, doing courses, really interesting courses. One one was around um, it was called the key person of influence. So how do you show leadership in your area? And a very tangible things about how do you pitch and how do you partner and how do you come up with products. So really quite. So I played with that for a little while. And then it it sort of all came together where I was trying to understand what was happening to mum. I guess it was like almost staying meta to the, the stuff that was happening and I ended up doing this moot course at uni at Tassie around what dementia is. And a very straightforward, only six weeks or something, it was like, you know, how do you care for them, what's going on in the brain and what are your alternatives, how do, you, how do you support them? And the stuff around the brain I was just intrigued about and so I ended up going down that path rabbit hole if you like or wormhole worms and rabbits um about neuroscience and I kept I was reading a lot about neuroscience I ended up doing a course in neuroscience about a year ago year and a half ago and that was a culmination of just years and years of reading but at the same time this stuff started to come together so mum was going down that route so I was reading about neuroscience I had my art practice. I was still doing work in the environment field, earning money, doing project management, you know, consulting, all that stuff. And it all started to come together. And I don't think it was an epiphany, but it was certainly this thing of something's going wrong here. (laughs) I've been in Canberra. I understand the politics, but they're not listening to the science. Why are they not listening to the science? It's it's so obvious what's happening. What is Mm. happening here? So I had to rethink my communication processes, you know. Why isn't the science cutting through here? And, you know, there's a lot of really good books out there now about why the science is not cutting through and the vested interests and the... The biases and all sorts of things. And you can go down that route if you like. But it made me think, okay, I've got to, I've got to think about this in a different way. And I, I got involved with a group that were doing, um, they basically look at the skills and behaviors of artists. And there was this wonderful research done around what are the skills and behaviours of living and past artists. About three, they studied 300 of them. And they came up with these amazing skills around discipline and how you see things and how you deal with risk and how you collaborate and what your discipline's like. And these are wonderful, you know, not abstract, very tangible skill sets that artists portray. And then they looked at, well, how applicable are they in leadership and management? And, of course, they are. They're directly transferable. So that got me on this next route of how do you use art-based approaches as a means to teach leadership and management, like what is risk and uncertainty in leadership or management. And that, so there was a whole lot of stuff I did around that. And then that led to more about coming up with these ideas around creativity and the basis of creativity, which is often seen as an art-based approach, but if you really cut it to its basics, creativity is coming up with something new that's valuable. When you think about imagination, and I was one of those kids who would look out the window and just imagine. I wasn't listening. And then that leads to creativity, which is how do you, you're looking and you're creating, but it may not be of value. And then innovation, which is you've actually taken all that stuff and you're actually creating something of value to society. And so I started to think, well, how do we, you know, we we all talk about failing and failing fast and how great it is to fail. Well, it's not great if you've just lost a couple hundred thousand dollars, is it? So, yeah, why do we jump from imagination to innovation and think that's all okay to fail? I mean, it's okay to fail if you're learning, but not if you, you know, mortgaged your house. So maybe we should sit in this space of creativity for longer and think about problem solving. And so I went down that again rabbit hole for six and six years literally to get to this point, six years of part-time research around what it is and the neuroscience behind it and the cognitive science and the psychology behind it. And it ended up last year spending 12 months writing a book, which turned into three books around the creative advantage. So I'm not giving a plug to the book while well, I am sort of giving a plug to the, no,
1: the book. No, please do. But,
0: <laughs> but it really it got to that point of I'm going to write this down. And if I don't give up, I stopped all the other work I was doing and I just sat down. And then, of course, COVID happened and it was the best thing to do, which was to sit down and write a book because what else are you going to do during a pandemic? So, yeah, so that's where I'm at now, which is a main book is out there. I, I had the wonderful, you'd love this, Matt, I was in the city last week and I saw the book in Dimmicks and i was oh, so wow. just, I almost wet myself. I was so yeah. excited <laughs> to see this book finally in a bookstore. Because I had copies from before Christmas and I'm like, I've got to start marketing. But to see it in a bookstore, the little thrill I got, it was very nice. Anyway, so at the book's there. There's an activity guide that goes with it, which is about, well, this is all the science, but what are you going to do about it? And then the third part of it, which is a self-published part, is how do you integrate that into your life? So I looked at lifespan and the significant periods of life around uh, parenting and education Uh, secondary school working and management and then retirement and I've looked at how you might apply this across that lifespan and again going back to the art-based practice there is so much stuff now around the leadership qualities of uh, learning those skill sets around art but also the health and well-being mental health and well-being aspects of art as well so That's got me on this other next phase, which you can feel a PhD coming at some point because there's this lovely concept called social prescribing, which the UK are miles ahead. UK and Canada are actually miles ahead of us. But there's this growing recognition in Australia about we don't have to prescribe Prozac. We don't have to prescribe all these drugs. We can actually prescribe an art class or send, you know, someone who's lonely off to a men's shed or someone, I'm not saying that you should go off and do a Zumba class, but, yeah, why not? Because of the social aspects, you know, mm. people are saying this is a lovely idea of dancing and the social aspects of dancing, but you've got to actually remember the steps too, so it's good cognitive health as well. So I, I sort of feel like I'm evolving into that space a little bit now too, yeah. So for me it's about continuing to learn, obviously. The other part of that that's interesting, I find too, is this idea that... Um, innovation in the corporate sense so there's this famous report by the IBM by IBM that's it's probably about six years old but it's quoted ad nauseum and they they looked at sort of 300 CEOs across I can't remember how many countries but a lot I think it's 50 countries and they all came back with the question was what do you need you know what are the skill sets that you look for in staff and that you need and they all came back with creativity they all came back with problem solving. And the complexity that's required, like, you know, in this, they call it this VUCA environment, you know, the volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous. So that environment that we all live in now, what do you need? And creativity just keeps coming up. And I just wrote a piece before about um, the World Economic Forum is showing that creativity, creative thinking, understanding problem solving are all coming up as skill sets. So... We need to be teaching our young kids this. We need to be not giving them the answer because, you know, they can get it on Google now. It doesn't yeah. matter. You don't have to remember facts anymore. Do we? I know that's really confronting for people that you don't have to remember facts anymore, but you don't. So what are the skill sets you're going to have to be teaching kids? And should we be future-proofing? students or future proofing jobs we talk about future proofing jobs all the time well it's actually no it's about the students let's future proof them so they can work in this ambiguity this complex world that we are so that's another that's a sort of a I'm in that sort of space at the moment in terms of work and really just thinking a lot about that now so yeah I'll take a breath.
1: (laughs) incredible maria thank you for sharing all of that that was uh, it's an amazing journey there's so much to explore and unpack first of all congratulations on your book being published and, and seeing it that would have been an incredible moment as you as you said can you plug your book very quickly for us
0: oh thank you so it's called the creative advantage how the intersection of science and creativity reveals life's ultimate advantage as I say, you get a free activity guide with it. And the second book that goes is, is now, it's an e book. It's called The Creative Advantage Life Cycle Enhance Your Creativity Throughout All Stages of Your Life. So they're available now.
1: So this wasn't your first dive into the writing no. process
0: so yeah. that that course i mentioned before gee they're getting a good plug out of this key person of influence but it is a really interesting course it, it was 40 weeks and they used all the things you as a teacher know this they used all the good things that education uses so they had accountability groups they had one on one work they had face to face lectures they had reading you know they used all those good tools that we use as, as educators and one of the, the second stage was writing a book. So it was pitch, publish, product, profile, partnerships. Again, they used the five Ps. That's things, yeah. And the second, when they did the, I went, I ended up getting this freebie, actually, they did a two-hour session to pitch it to us and they were using all the techniques and I'm like, yeah, whatever. And then they got to this bit about publishing and the, this lovely man, Andrew Griffiths, who has actually mentored me on my book, Stood up and talked about publishing, and I thought, "Gee, I'd never thought to write a book." So it hooked me, and I ended up doing the course. And I had to come up with um, this is when I was starting to look after Mum a lot more, so I needed something part time, and I needed something to get my brain going as much mm. as anything, because you know, as a carer, you can, you know, climbing up the wall a few times, as you know. So I ended up looking at what what what's true for me at the moment, and I was going through a career a career transition. So the book became. Um, Sweet Spot Careers, A Practical and Creative Guide to Successful Midlife Career Transition. <laughs> what do they say? Talk about what you know. So yeah. so that was a good way to put in practice all the things I was learning through that course. And that was just a self-published book. But, it, look, it sold. I ended up doing workshops around it. Kept me interested for about two years. And then I decided, no, nah, this is not a career I want to continue because really the only thing you can do with careers is coach and I, maybe it was imposter syndrome, I don't know, but I didn't really want to coach women about going up the hierarchy and going into the corporate world when I, in my heart, didn't think it was the right thing to yeah. do. Like I, I know we need more diversity in the corporate sector, but that, as you can see, we need a lot of changes, and I don't know that just putting women in, a, in that seat is going to make a huge amount of difference. We need a whole lot of changes to happen as we're seeing in Canberra at the moment with you know rape allegations and all sorts of things it's there's a lot of stuff that needs to shift and these each time we see this there's a catalyst something else shifts so you know all strength and um, power to those young people who are particularly the young women who are speaking out at the moment so anyway I I didn't I didn't continue that career transition stuff as a my own career because i think i got enough out of it by just writing about it and talking about it to people so
1: i do get where you're coming from you you mentioned it earlier with the future proofing jobs and then you know is it okay just to throw diversity at an industry that is failing or that is failing the world in a way should we be looking to change that system and change the the places that people meet and the jobs that we do and the the outlooks that we have rather than just say if we diversify that industry, it... it it will magically become better there might be a problem with its goals its values its culture that just you know may not change based on who's there although as you say women people from other backgrounds people from all sorts of walks of life should be in every workplace but maybe maybe it is much deeper um, than that
0: absolutely there's so much to unpack there isn't there so first of all we're at that that tipping point yet again where we're moving into the creative century. And so diversity is part of that, rethinking and and problem-solving in different ways. So we we talk about the creative economy now and we have this fear that AI is going to take over. AI can't take over in creative areas. AI can take over where you can have this linear process with Mm. very strong parameters and it's fine for the automotive industry. And there's a lot of work already out there around what are the sorts of jobs that are at risk? And they're those ones that are automated, you know. And HR, for example, you can send your CV and and there's some analytics that looks for keywords now. So things that we thought were really safe. (laughs) But the creative stuff is about diversity. There's some really nice research that I think it's in the book that talks about, oh, yeah, there's one story about how you put four statisticians together and if you add a statistician, you don't get a better outcome. You add a psychologist and you get a great outcome, not just because of the diversity, but because the statisticians want to prove themselves to the psychologist. Mm. And that means they've got to rethink things. They've got to actually think about what they're saying. They can't just make these ambit claims because they've got someone who's an outsider in the room who doesn't actually believe them. So diversity is about, it's going to be challenging, which is why it's so hard now. I was talking to someone the other day about the Me Too movement when that first came out, well, maybe six years ago, we started to talk about this and it felt a bit glib. It was like everyone was saying they'd been abused by someone. And I thought, you know, really? Is that, was that? And now you look at where that is and you've got women standing up and really like some of the, the strength that they have, these 25 year olds coming out and saying, and then you've got these young kids, I, you know, I have so much faith in the future when I see 14 year olds getting together, organising demonstrations against climate change. My God, internationally, Greta is a hero. I love that bill. Mm. It's just an amazing strength and, I, you know, I don't know if I could. I mean, I was tripping over my, my shoelaces at 14, let alone organising demonstrations. The shifts are happening. You know, when I think about the complexity of just looking at the gay marriage stuff that we went through in Australia and thinking, do we just wait for these old farts to die? Like, really, is, is that the only way this is going to change? It's mm. certain people with certain fixed views because they just were brought up that way and they, they're they not bad people. They just will not shift in the way that they think. Do we just have to wait for them to die and, you know, to be blunt, to die out like the dinosaurs? No, we actually had a shift. There was enough people coming through and enough people changing their mind, and that gives me faith as well that, you know diversity is important and all that but it's accepting diversity that's more important you know we've had gender we've got color and I think the next wave is going to be about mixed abilities so people of diverse abilities and um, you know on the spectrum as we talk about that feels like that's the next wave of really pushing like that's really pushing uphill that one so really pushing against the entrenched forces that just believe that if you aren't like me, you are therefore not mm. able to do this role. So, and I, I can see just myself too in the conversations I'm having with older people, who would have thought that you get to 50 and you're unemployable? That's that's really scary. Reading yesterday, I think it was, that this subsidy to employ young people post-COVID, and the result of that is that some employees are sacking their older workers so they can get the subsidy for a younger person to come. Like, what are you thinking? Like, really? Aren't you just going to have to get another manager to oversee these young people anyway? Like, you weren't going to throw them in and do something that an older, more experienced person was doing? Like, it's going to take time. (laughs) But I just feel like we have to see diversity in the broader sense of the word that you will get a better response, a better outcome, a better answer to whatever that ridiculous problem you're dealing with if you accept that it's going to take a lot of ideas to get it to that point.
1: The the problem just at the end there is incentives are out of whack in, in so many fields, in so many ways. And I find that the issue, just like we were talking about with the future-proofing jobs, maybe the issue isn't that jobs are changing. The issue is that we're not training people for the future, as we as you were saying. Likewise, with there's a lot of young unemployed people the, the issue isn't just saying let's throw a bit of money there so that we can get rid of the old ones because then there's an issue there we've raised the retirement age to 70 odd while yeah. ensuring there are un- uh, people over 50 are unemployable that means you've got 20 years of staying in a job not changing not growing because you're scared of losing that job it becomes almost you know you're, you're enslaved to that and yeah. you know you tell people that you've got a long way to live you're only halfway through life whatever but if you're not treated like that, if the, if it's not valued, if you're not valued in society, then you're not going to just listen to the words. You're going to see what the actions are. And I think that comes with everywhere, diversity. The idea of saying we're diverse when we're really not is another issue with that. It's to say that we need to be more resilient or to say that we need to be problem solvers or creative. But what's mm. happening in the middle? And that idea of diversity, I was thinking recently with Eddie Maguire at the Collingwood Football Club and Scott Morrison with the rape allegations and his response. And mm. they were completely out of out of whack. That, the, the, the responses were just not right mm. in any way. I don't think... I don't agree with the politics necessarily of Scott Morrison. I don't like the Collingwood Football Club necessarily, but... I don't Be believe careful. it. People <laughs> I mean.
0: listen. No, I'm not a Collingwood supporter. But people are listening. Don't leave me if I said someone. that.
1: <laughs> I, we love we love to hate Collingwood. So that's you know you're there for a reason. Um, but the thing is that those people I don't think are necessarily bad bad people. But what they they lack is an understanding because they're not in diverse landscapes. You know, if you're going to respond, I was thinking that speech that Scott Morrison made about the rape allegations and the the horrible stuff, and he had to change his mind and say, I, I you know, had to speak to my wife, I had, and you know, completely backtrack from what he said. Yeah. Where are the people from diverse backgrounds reading that and saying, maybe you've got to say this in a different way? Here's why. Or even with Eddie McGuire saying it's a great day for the Collingwood Football Club to hear that there's systemic racism involved. Mm-hmm. You know that how could that be worded better? Maybe there it needs to be more diversity to just say, "Hey, we can approach this in a much better way and fix things, but without the diversity there to begin with 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 we can't understand it as you said with yeah. me too, yeah. I don't understand that world of allegations and and assault and harassment and all that because i'm I'm hopeful that I'm not involved in that as a perpetrator at all yeah. and yeah. I've never been a victim of it so I don't know but people are and the best explanation I've heard when someone that you respect and and was sort of unfairly done by in that movement is if we want to clean the streets or a river you know you flush it you flush a toilet if there happens to be a diamond ring in there while you're getting everything else out of the Mm sewage system it's it's something that has to be done because we've created that mess to begin with so there are going to be people left behind or hard done by along the way but mostly we're we're trying to find parity in respect and dignity and hopefully we get there along the way
0: it's such a big one isn't it because you're exactly right I was thinking about the other day someone was saying why I mean I I really feel for the farmers in the agriculture sector at the moment Mm -hmm. Um, there's some extraordinary leadership coming out of that sector when it comes to climate change and yet they haven't got people to pick their fruit. They haven't, you know, they haven't got any water. People really don't understand how hard it is on the land, yeah. and I don't. I mean, I had, a, you know, an Italian father with a backyard. That's as close as I've got to a farm. And someone was saying to me the other day, why don't young people go out and pick fruit? Well, it might be because they're paid shit. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. until you look at everything around it, why would you? Mm. You know, it's an adventure. I mean, if you're backpacking, sure, because you're not really relying on that money, presumably, if you're backpacking. You've hopefully got enough money to keep you going around. But if you're in the, you know, you're in your early 20s and you're looking to start to get into a career, why would you be paid shit and go do a hard job if you're not respected in that? So that means the price of food has to go up or... The supermarkets have to take less profit so yeah. the farmers get more money, etc. Like it's let's just tease this out rather than saying young people are lazy, they won't go up to you know, whoop whoop and you know, pick peaches or whatever it is. It just like this, it just feels to me that you know, when we think about these responses that come out, you know, the Collingwoods and the, you know, whatever the politics of it, who is around that person, who's enabling that quite restrictive approach and response clearly people who are thinking we just have to get through this and hopefully some other crisis will happen and the we know the attention will go somewhere else instead of thinking about again I know we're talking about diversity a lot here but instead of thinking about let's have a diversity opinions let's scenario plan the sorts of things that can come out and where's the good like let's not just do it for self-protection Where's the positive that can come out of this? And, I, you know, I look at New Zealand and half the cabinet is women. Now, New Zealand, I know, there are how many million people there? I don't know, three million people? And oh, yeah. Yes, it's not in America and it's not a China and it has a different set of... But, geez, they're doing well. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know that it's because women are there, but I know that it's because there's an acceptance and a diversity and they have, you know, Maoris in, in government now and you know, it has to be better that you've got this lovely, not lovely, sorry, that but you've got a more thorough understanding of what the people and the communities are going through. So it just makes sense. And I feel like there's, you know, we'll just keep pushing. It's 10 years ago it was different. 10 years ago climate change, you know, I was hitting my head against brick walls around climate change, even 10 years. Now, I, you know... Over 50% of the population think that a change is happening and most of those think it's human-induced. That's a million miles away from where we were when I came out of university. Yeah, Like the shift is happening. Have we got enough time? Well, that's what the scientists are saying. No, we haven't got enough time. We can't wait for all the dinosaurs to die. <laughs> we actually have to do something today. So that's yeah. my fear and I look at my, the, you know, the kids around me, and the legacy of problems that they I mean other than the fact that COVID has put us all in debt and we're going to be paying for that for a long time you've also got the sustainability issues and so that just drives me further and in fact I wrote those books based on the fact that it was my contribution to problem solving because what we're doing now is not working as bad as that sounds.
1: What was the acronym that IBM came up with? You mentioned earlier, uncertainty, complexity and uh, well, ambiguity. So that was the I first? don't think they came up
0: with it. Yeah, so it's called VUCA. I think it's VUCA. just an acronym that the business sector has come up with. So All it's right. volatility, uncertainty, complexity and ambiguity. And uh, so the VUCA environment is, so, is what we're living with. Well,
1: and that was said, and, and we had COVID to prove it. We've had COVID to prove that that world exists. We've had prior to COVID... The, was it the World Economic Forum that brings out their risk assessments each year as to where on the scale, you know, events and, and pandemic has moved up in, in likelihood and, and effect, but it was always there. But you have things like most of them. I think the top five in intensity and probability all came down to environmental disaster and climate change-related things. And we can see that. And as you said, uh, when you were working in Canberra, people knew about what was coming and it just wasn't happening. Where are we at now from what you've seen and you're growing? You've touched on a few things that the young people are changing. But why is it so hard for people that can see? We we know. I think most people. I think even the people that say that climate change doesn't exist, either, yeah, vested interest or, or fear that just bury their head in the sand. It can't be. Yes. It's a tiny minority that actually believe it's untrue or that, you know, it's not related yeah. to us. So what's what's what's
0: perpetuating what, it? What do, you, oh, what do you think? You know, I've I've had this conversation so many times around fire the fire of 2019, which started in October and lasted till February. And you listen to the emergency services people saying, We knew this was going to be a shit summer because mm-hmm. we couldn't do the burn-offs. We didn't have those windows. Because every time we tried to do a burn-off, the weather would get incredibly windy or hot and it was just too dangerous and wasn't there a couple of occasions where it got out of control anyway in New South Wales and you know burnt houses and farms etc I listened to that and I I listened to still people saying months after we saw those devastating images of Mallacoota and every state was touched by that fire during Mm. that period and yes there was there's the, the El Nino was swirling around us but why four or five months later when people would say, yeah, but, you know, Australia, we always have droughts, we always have fires. And I got to the point because I'd get really angry about it, and this is, you know, just dealing with people in shops. It's not people I know really intimately. But I started to get really angry and I ended up saying, you need to read more. Mm. It wasn't normal what happened. You've got experts, far more expert than me, saying this. They're not scientists, they're actually firefighters, they're emergency services people, they're people who are ecologists who are, you know, seeing what's happening to our soil, et cetera, et cetera. All those things that built up, you know, you've got the fact that we don't have enough animal, you know, like the insect populations are dying out, the ground-dwelling populations are dying out, so they're not digging up the soil and digging up that organic material. It's just sitting there, drying out. Oh, my God, let's just start a fire with that, shall we? So... You've got these people that all these bits of the, you know, problem are starting to come together. And still, and I a couple of times I'd say that might have been okay to say that 10 years ago, even five years ago, but it's not okay to say it now. And if you say it publicly, you will be you're you're a fool. You need to read more. And that would shut the conversation down. And I'd try and think, okay, that's not actually what this was about, but it was about saying. Just because you heard it on Three AW or something, I'm sorry. That was one person's view. You've got this round of people now from all sorts of, and the business sector. I've got to say, they are really standing up now. Mm. There are there are groups. The corporate sector is really quite strong. The, the insurance sector has been saying this for years because the reinsurers are not going to they're not around anymore (laughs) like who's going to insure the insurance the insurance industry that you know the reinsurers have been talking about climate change for 20 years or maybe longer so there is the groundswell happening but yes the cynical side of me says it's you know it's vested interests I've you know why is the coal industry it's too easy to just keep exporting coal because that's an easy response. So, what's the renewable industry done? They've gone out and they've just proved it over and over again, and now the cost is comparable. It took them twenty odd years. It took, you know, but they are there now. So, it will be the economy of the economics of this that gets us to the point where, yes, we have wind systems. Yes, we have renewable systems. Biomass. Even ocean energy, that's still on the card. So it's it's just going to shift and, you know, we talk about sustainability, but in the end, economy, I still feel the economy is going to make these decisions and in one sense that's okay, you know, because the the renewable market has just proven itself now. There is no logical reason for us to put more coal-fired power stations in Australia, literally. And this whole bullshit about its jobs, really? There's no jobs in other areas? Really? Like, come on. But the groundswell is is happening and it's just whether it happens in the, you know, you, you listen to someone like Tim Flannery and he says, you know, we've got till 2050 and now he's probably rethinking that, that it's, you know, the parts per million is way over yeah. what we thought the world could take and we're still okay, <laughs> just. Yeah. And the problem really is we can turn the air conditioners on. It's the transitional and third world countries that really
1: are going to be screwed. I read a book during the fires called *Sunburnt Mm. Country by Joelle Gurgis, who I think she's based at um, ANU and is a climate scientist. And she worked on the panel for climate change, the UN panel, and did a lot of work for the Southern Hemisphere and for Australia in, in particular. And there hadn't been much written about the effect on Australia and the effect on the Southern Hemisphere from climate change. And what she laid out was this idea that, yes, Australia's always been a continent that's had fires and extreme weather and, and a climate that could be considered extreme. And she goes through all the news articles uh, originally from colonial Australia and then back to stories from Indigenous uh, wow. people and, and elders and then goes through the fossil records and the ice records and the rock Records And she lays it all out saying what's happened over the last, you know, Mm. 50,000 years, what stories do we have from newspapers from the last 200 years, and then just says what's going on right now, and that this is unprecedented by any metric Mm. you want to use, that Mm. whether it's fire, whether it's king tides and floods and, um, you know, uh, damage to the ocean, the coasts whether it's what's happening to farmland and river systems, the ski seasons are getting shorter every year. Um, fake snow is used yeah. in more and more often. You know, everything that is telling us it's happening is happening. It's no longer a thing that's in the future. We're here. And if that's happened now and we're seeing this grow exponentially, what are we going to have? You know, 2050 is too late, you know. Yeah. So yeah. and not only do we have to stop emitting carbon we've got to start sequestering it too we've got to br- draw it down so we've got to have the double the double whammy now yep. and um yep. is that happening probably not you talked about the economy and building coal plants and the gas led recovery a very short-term view and maybe the election systems of every three years and this it's all about being elected and not about the country anymore and this is someone that I, I think politics has a big role to play in improving our world. I think politics needs to be improved and can be improved um, and we need great people to get involved. But right now we're saying how can I win because we need to win, not what do we need to do. It doesn't matter if we're in power. We just need this to happen. Um, mm. that's, that's, that's disappeared. And the economy will not improve by investing in old technology and in fossil fuels. It. Yeah. M- only improve with a green lead recovery. We know that. So, the yeah. economy is no longer a good enough reason because the jobs are no longer a good enough reason. Because, as you said, jobs can come from renewables, and there's going to be many more from renewables than. Oh
0: yeah, and you think about you think about, the, you know, the jobs that are now five years ago weren't mm. here. Like you know, I, and I don't have the skill sets to do those things. So yeah. it's just shifting so much. But just going back to the pandemic, it's that interesting thing around. Like, I look at what the Morrison government did in terms of doing the handouts, the job seeker and the job keeper quite quickly, once they realised how screwed everything was and that we had to close everything down. And they did put health above economy yep. and accepted that they would blow out, you know, and this whole thing of having a surplus, you know, it, to me, that was a really interesting thing that they had to finally let go of having a surplus. What does that mean? Like, why was that so important? Is that it's an indicator that they can run the economy better? Well, maybe, maybe not, but they were well, they were willing to let go of a, a thing that, to me, was embedded in their principle of being a yep. big L Liberal. Yeah. And we all praised them for it. Now we're getting angry at them because they're going to get rid of it because the economy is not, you know, the jobs aren't matching this yet and will be interesting to see. I heard today that they were going to increase... Um, job seeker, which I'm not sure what they're going to call it now, by five dollars mm. a day, and I'm like, really? That's just offensive. Like we know that unemployed people can't live off three hundred bucks, whatever it is, two hundred forty bucks yeah. a, a week. But then there was that interesting theme that was coming through of there's the new unemployed that lost their job because of the pandemic, and the old unemployed which were just lazy.
1: Yes. they
0: were unemployed yep. because they're lazy. Yep. Um, it's like really? Like yep. are we? They're probably 50-year-olds who lost their job because the car industry closed down and no one would employ them again. Mm. They're probably women who tried to get back into the workforce after having children and no one would employ them because they didn't go to university, they had kids instead. Like there's all this stuff and you just think how simplistic is this? But the result was we had a change for 12 months and I'm reading a lot at the moment about working from home remotely. Now that you know, years that there's been this push for that from the transport perspective, from getting cars off the road, from you know peak hour tra- public transport being appalling to be on. You know, when you you know you're in those trains with sweaty people, yuck. And now, wow. It just needed a pandemic for us to realise that people can be productive and, in fact, be more productive at home because they're not stuffing around in public transport or whatever. It, just, it almost feels like we need these catalytic events to shift and see that it's going to be OK. Now, I hope that the world climate is not going to collapse before us to realise that, oh, maybe we should be getting rid of some of that carbon, you know? But it feels like we don't like change We are fearful. All those things you talked about, we're fearful, we hang on to stuff and we don't embrace curiosity and creativity in the way that we could. We just put it over to musicians or artists. That's that's the creative lot. Mozart's creative. I'm not, you know, that sort of bullshit. I know every time this happens, we just take the learnings. Very early on in the pandemic, I was really pleased that we were taking the advice of science. The health professionals who had to come out of the woodwork and were on stage, you know, front and centre with the Prime Minister and the Premiers because they had to show there was a reason for doing what they were doing and the science was telling us this. Well, let's translate that now into climate change. The science is telling us this. So we just have to keep saying this and saying it to different audiences. And, you know, I'm very suspicious about this whole thing with Facebook because what does that mean? Okay, so if we take the news off Facebook, then we are... Listening to the crazies, okay. Well, they get more of it, more coverage, I guess. But the Murdoch press is also getting more coverage. So, you know, I'm very skeptical about what's happening now. Facebook behaved appallingly. You don't embed yourself in a community and say you are about community, and then when times get tough, you just pull the plug. I mean, that's just mm, give me a break. But I also think, you know, we've been seeing this shift towards media domination for what years and years and years and people have been crying out we need more diversity we need regional papers supported we need more blah 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 we can't have them running radio tv and newspaper like we knew this and yet we've allowed it to happen now that is about vested interest that is clearly about money going into the right pockets so I have no faith that unless we push against that but we do we have the conversation we have the guardian I'm not saying they're the only groups out there, but we have these alternative that we have to pay for, but bloody oath, you pay for it, you pay for what you get. And I am a contributor to both of them. So, you know, it's, it's really important that we, I guess, start to just educate people over and over again and get into the places that you wouldn't normally get into to talk to people about things that they wouldn't normally hear. And that means being at the hairdresser or at the, you know, buying your clothes, buying your veggies and having those conversations. A number of conversations about the fire I had in queues, like standing in a queue waiting for something and people are started to talk because, that, you know, we always talk about the weather, don't you? That's this mm. neutral zone that we can talk about. Isn't it funny today? And then it would invariably get to the fire and you get, you get a sense of where people are at. Yep. And I'm not saying they're uneducated, but to be able to give back to them and say, you need to read more, you need to read different things, because what you're saying is just not true anymore, you're never going to see those people again. Who cares?
1: <laughs> I had this um, conversation today with someone asking about, you like news, What what's going on with <laughs> Facebook? And you like news. I, I said, to, I said I, first of all, I, I don't have Facebook. I said, I don't have it, so I don't care personally. I think nobody should rely on Facebook to get news. Mm. I don't think anyone should rely on Facebook for anything other than connecting with people you don't get to connect with. But that's not what it's about anymore. It's about eyes on screen for as long as possible with the thing that outrages you the most. You know, that's what it's about. And I started and then someone says, no, but I'm in the music scene and, you know, little musical papers, little authors that have free journals or whatever um, are dead now because that was how we shared. And I said, Yeah. yeah, but... That's a fault that we have to rely on Facebook to get that out. It shouldn't just mean we give in to all their demands. What what we need is that there is that I remember Beat Magazine was in every cafe and restaurant to find out about music. We used to pay mm. journalists. People used yes. to care about applying their tr- uh, craft and, and we used to respect that. And now it's like the internet, someone will write a free article and we'll let the advertisers pay for that. If not, yeah. bad luck. So people are just trying to go to the most extreme headline and I was trying to get this through and everyone's like, I don't know why I ask you. And I'm like, what answer did you want? Like, you know. Well, this is... they
0: didn't want to have to think about it, did they? No. I and so
1: that's they want you to everything. give them a
0: nice, clean answer. Yes. Facebook's yes. bad.
1: Murdered. And tell me how to think in, a in a, you know, a yeah. less than a minute. And then fires were the same thing. People wanted to know, what do you yeah. think? of the, Well, what do you mean I, what do I think about the fires? I mean, they're horrible. They're bad. They're always <laughs> going to happen. I mean, and what do you I mean that yeah. was going to happen I heard the, you know COVID people start talking about COVID and now the anti-vaxxers and the um yeah, yeah, you know the conspiracy theorists are out of the woodwork talking about it And and how do they start to dominate the conversation at these times and it's because I think of social media and I think it's boredom and anxiety and and there's just too much to unpack a friend of mine even said when you talk about the climate and I wonder what I can do you're telling me to change the way I live to accommodate what needs to happen. And I mm-hmm. said, well, one step at a time. But I do, I need to change the way I live. We have all need to change the way I live. We can't have the air conditioner on any temperature mm-hmm. we want all day without yes. solar panels, you know, and, and all the right thing. We can't, and even then you still have to consume less. You know, you can't change your battery and something and throw in the bin every day. You can't be, you know, driving a car that doesn't, have any sort of standards in how much energy uh, you know fuel it consumes we have to think about these things but it shouldn't just be up to us so that's why we need to become politically active and engaged and 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 it's these conversations that we're constantly having and it is too hard and people are just like well stuff it i don't care i was happy and now you've told me these things and now i'm not it's earlier. your fault. It's yeah, your right. reason. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but I felt that way. You do go through a depression and a lull when you find yeah. out this stuff. But it, yes. it was existing whether you knew about it or not. So you may as well be educated and not ignorant, and um, and then try and do something. You know, small incremental steps.
0: I am actually very optimistic about what's going on with climate change. I feel like, and I'm looking at a Paul Hawkins quote. As I say this, can I read this to you? This yeah, is yeah, for sure. It's a brilliant quote. So Paul Hawkins is this amazing environmentalist. He said when asked if I'm a pessimist or an optimist about the future, my answer is always the same. If you look at the signs about what is happening on earth and aren't pessimistic, you don't understand the data. But if you meet the people who are working to restore this earth and the lives of the poor and you aren't optimistic, then you haven't got a pulse. And I am I'm am, I am optimistic. I hit my head against brick walls the whole like everybody else I get frustrated but I think the change is happening and and I just see the shifts these incremental shifts and I am quite positive you know I see an Elon Musk and I think okay so he's that he's got these extraordinary views but he does something about it and he might actually be around to see people on Mars like that's pretty amazing that this he's used his his wealth, I mean, he's, he's not slumming it, but, you know, it's just used his wealth mm. to push and drive technology. And I, and now I think about EVs. Now, when I was started in the environmental area, electric vehicles were like this pariah, you know, you'd get two miles out of them and then they'd conked it, like all the stories about how bad they were. Now we're seeing car companies for economic reasons saying they're not going to have petrol-driven cars. What is it, in the next 10 years? Or... Yeah,
1: yeah. But like, I think so Jaguar the shift... came out recently, yeah. Yes, yeah. yes.
0: So the shifts are happening and we just have to take a deep breath and notice that stuff and then make sure people are aware that the shifts are happening and change is okay. Like, does it really hurt you having a compost bin? But I'm in an apartment block and we have a new recycling system in place. And so we've finally got the caddies for our organic compost. We've got the recycling stuff and the waste. And it's taken 12 months, but people finally get what is waste and what is recyclable. And it's like really we go through the bins, we have to take out the loose-fill plastic because the now there's cameras in the waste trucks and so if they see any bit of plastic coming towards them, they the whole bin gets dropped, and you know you get three warnings, and if you stuff it up more than three times, the council doesn't collect it anymore. So the fear is there that we'll have this waste, you know, yeah. and that's a driver. That's that's spurred a few of the older ones. What on, I gotta say, but it's this interesting thing of I don't know what it was that was the block, other than they've never done it this way before. It's plastic, just chuck it in the place. No, it's the wrong sort of plastic. I know it's hard to understand. But you're you're a smart person, you can work this out. You know, it's not hard plastic, it hasn't got the little triangle on the back, it's <laughs> loose. And a couple of times people got angry back at me. And I said, why are you getting angry over this? Why is this, you know, what what is it? Because. And then they'd realize how stupid they'll be. <laughs> okay, but it's taken 12 months and you know, we've finally got a system in place that if it a bit of plastic gets in the bin, it's a mistake, it's not a deliberate act and I just think that's that's just one apartment block (laughs) dealing with freaking plastic like but at the same time I think about when I started you know 20 odd 30 odd years ago being really serious about environmental issues and not just you know having fresh eggs in the backyard because dad had chickens but really understanding the food chain and how badly we treat chickens how badly we treat animals really like as this commodity to be filled with hormones as quick as possible, killed as as ruthlessly as possible to get it into Mm. into the supermarkets. I mean, when you think about it, and I have actually gone vegetarian partly because of that, partly because I can't trust some of that food chain stuff, and partly because I know that with due respect, meat just the, the amount of energy that has to go into, you know, the water, the pesticides, the all that stuff to get to me is just too much a cost. And so now I'm still eating fish and I'm worried about the food chain when it comes to fish because now we've got plastics in the food chain there, haven't we? So eventually I'll probably ease myself out of that. But I tell you, it's the change is, is happening and it has to happen and you just have to suck it in, you know.
1: Yeah, and the only alternative is, as you said, well, I'll go back a step. The education is key. Education is hard. To to build something and create something, it takes a lifetime. And to destroy it, it takes a minute. And that's what we've done. We've learned these ways over generations, and we've heard stories of, you know, work hard, make money, get rich, buy stuff, yeah. happiness, yeah. or whatever it is. And then we just so yeah. My incentive isn't to have money anymore because what am I going to buy with it? Stuff that's, you know, been made by some sweatshop or that's destroying the environment, you know, whatever it might be. But we have to look at that pessimism and say, all right, do we just forget about it and do it anyway? Do we forget about it and just not buy anything and sit in a room until we die? Or are we those, (laughs) you know, are we those optimists that go, do you know what, we can educate, we can change, we can be the change we want to see? Yeah.
0: One thing, though, that just again, just to show change is happening. So um, I had to work on the Commonwealth Modern Slavery Act. We had a, a group I was working with, a telco group. We're making some changes. How do how do we build capacity in the telco industry to abide by the Modern Slavery Act, which came in twelve months ago, twenty twenty, I think it was January twenty twenty. And so we in 2018-19 were leading up to how do we? And I got to meet two people, Caroline and Fuzz Kitto. And they started a modern slavery nonprofit. And they were plugging away for 12 years. And you listen to this story and you just think, my God, this and there's a lot of really good people out there. And basically they understood what was happening, they had been touched personally by it and they decided the political route was the way to do it, and it took them 12 years. And eventually, when I met them, we had a spokesperson from Labor and a spokesperson from Liberal, and both of them had been touched again by slavery in some way. You'd think this thing that seems so abstract and overseas and, or it happened 200 years ago when we were, you know, America to Africa, blah, blah, blah. No, it's happening now. And one of them was a Liberal guy who um, was working in Mildura, um, before he went into politics and the agricultural industry had been found out that yeah. they were withholding passports and all that sort of stuff. And the other one was to do the labour lady was um, I think she was a grand, her grandfather had been brought over, maybe her great-grandfather had been brought over, uh, forced indenture of some sort from Fiji, forced into labour, and so she was a product of of that. Two personal stories, which when I heard them, I thought, my God, and the way that that turned into, you know, going through um, having some type of a, a government study, which was lobbied against, uh, sorry, lobbied for, and then it turned into an act. And there's only a couple of countries that have got the Modern Slavery Act, and Australia's one of them, and I think Canada's got it now, the UK's got it, and I think, I think the, I think California might have it. And I, I was so proud when I heard that story, when I heard, because I had never come across this before. I had to do mm-hmm. it. You know, I wanted to research this subject area, so I was giving the appropriate advice. And hearing that 12 years of just plugging away, plugging away, plugging away, and then getting the government, on, uh, getting politicians on side, going through these, whatever they needed to do in terms of those internal assessments, it went through and became an act of parliament the law they're working on the guidelines and we've got the first reporting period it might have been extended because of COVID I think the first reporting period's this year now and I just thought oh my god that's that's a recent living thing this isn't 60 years well no this is the last 12 years and I can see the change and how brilliant is that change and how much we should be celebrating it I don't know that people even know about this but Mm. it's just I felt like it was the most brilliant thing on earth. And I look for those stories. I went to um, Costa Rica 2019. Now, I'd studied Costa Rica, so it's a Central American country. There's tiny little country in the middle of you know, Panama on one side and Guatemala on the other. You wouldn't know it if you didn't know about it. And I studied them years ago because they put in place a sustainable development plan. And their country was screwed, like most of the, you know, Central American countries, they their basket cases, and they had enough people in the right places at the right time that decided they were going to shift, and they embedded sustainable sustainable development into their tourism. So thirty years later, that country is a standout country. They've I think it's now I might be a bit wrong with a bit rusty with the figures here, but it's something like fifty percent of the country is biodiversity. It's trees, and they've replanted. And I went to those forests and you wouldn't have thought they'd ever been cut down. You know, honestly, they look pristine. And about 60% of those, so 60% of the 50%, is in private ownership. So they have them protected because they want tourists to come in there so they're not about to go and cut them down. Their economy has turned around and it's this positive story that in 30 years they have changed their economy and there's a social outcome, uh, there's an, a, an, clearly an environmental outcome, and there's an economic outcome in 30 years. It wasn't 200 years, What it, it was 30 years. It's someone's lifetime, or a third of a lifetime, but a change has happened. And I, I look at that, and that is something to be celebrated, that it's, it doesn't take hundreds of years, it can take less than 30 years. And I just think I look at those stories and I think this is amazing. Now, the other upshot of that one was I looked at the turtles. So they protect turtles in Costa Rica, but Guatemala and Panama don't. So these stupid freaking turtles go to these other countries Uh, and get killed. So it just shows this the importance of the significance of having collective, collaborative.
1: International agreements, yeah.
0: International agreements, etc. You know, when people say those UN agreements don't make a difference, they do make a
1: difference. They do, yeah. And
0: And if it's shaming a country like Australia because we're not signing on to the right climate change, or it's because the poor little turtles don't know where there's (laughs) women. So, you know, you've got to find those stories and we don't celebrate them enough. You know, when you said before you can sit in a corner and in the dark and become, you know, very depressing to be around or you can seek out these uh, ways of behaving and living and celebrating and you're doing it through the podcast, you're looking for these stories to, you know, spread that message, then you've got to stay optimistic, don't you? I mean, I don't want to be Pollyanna about the whole thing, but there's enough good stuff happening to keep us all around.
1: (laughs) And 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 social media once again the news cycle all of that promotes the negative. We do need a search for the good because it is there. Costa Rica is a really interesting example because one of my favourite podcasts is Outrage and Optimism, which has Cristiana Figueres. She was like one of the architects for the Paris Agreement on climate change. Yes. The daughter, I believe, of the first independent president of Costa Rica years oh, ago. Oh my God that disbanded the military. So he was someone that said, if we want peace, we have no military. If we want yes, our country to be, heck. you know, an environmentally friendly place, we protect the rainforest. And I think they're about to push to have the biggest marine park in the world per capita or something to, to expand it to a ridiculous number.
0: And they yeah. redirected that money from the military, didn't they? They did. They have. So the all land and money everything and,
1: and tourism, yes. instead of just being these mega hotels Uh, where they knocked you know a bit like Fiji or something where you know they had to do things for their community and stuff and and people wanted to go there or Bali let's just knock down what's there and build these resorts and let the foreign owned stuff come in or whatever Costa Rica have done it all themselves with their own people Mm -hmm. their own Mm -hmm. you know way and that's an amazing story and there are other little pockets of that around in the world so it is important to find these people that have seen success and then they're able to go and live it out themselves and
0: yeah and maybe that that answers the question from before about how do you uh, make change easier to digest you show them that the world's not going to collapse you know you show them that it Mm. has a very small impact on you I mean I'm I'm gung-ho about efficient housing at the moment because I'm living in a place that probably hasn't really applied by some of the standards (laughs) let's not go there you know, I look at there's a one of my ex bosses, Brendan Condon, is doing this amazing work in Cape Patterson where he's bought he's bought land and he's got 240 houses that are in, as part of an estate and uh, they are selling and people are buying them and they are going to have a zero energy bill. And I just look at that and I think, right, and now he's getting all this consulting work, you know, because people want to know, oh, my God, you mean it actually can work, not just in a little group of, you know, hippie commune types. We're talking about an estate with a 1,000 people and some of them are driving electric cars and they might commute into the city or now they might remote you know work remotely like it's just you know I don't want to sound again like it's it's easy but he did it and he's demonstrating how possible it is and people want to live in these types of houses so unless you offer it to them they're not going to know it's possible so again it, it to me it is always about promotion awareness education and then capacity building so i think we're we're all the same wavelength there.
1: If you've got an idea, you've got a passion, you have to do it and you have to be the one that does it because no one else is going to do it for you. Yeah. Your passion currently, you know, with your books and what you're doing now is towards creativity and, and not just saying with the jobs of the future require creativity do something you're showing people and and actually allowing them to live that through what you do can you explain what it is that you're currently doing to to make people more creative it's a skill i've heard you say rather than something you're born with it can be taught and and also creativity can be about science the environment business whatever it is so it's in every element of life we need creativity
0: the foundation that's right so I had a couple of ways of approaching this. I could have gone down the route of let's take an art-based approach, and I thought, mm, okay, that's going to it's that's limiting because it it just confines what creativity is yet again to an art, and that's not to take away from the you know the skills base that happens with art. I'm, I'm as a practitioner, I know that. So I started to look at the psychology behind it, and there's a a woman called Teresa Amabile from Harvard Business School who's done 30 years I think of research she has this model that she has called the creative elements model there's three internal components one is to do with motivation expertise and then skills and behaviors and then the fourth element is the work or social environment so she has laid out this science behind what enables creativity so it makes a lot of sense when you think about the work environment if you're enabled to be creative you will be creative okay if you stifle it you know it's all it's all well and good but we're not going to go that way then obviously you're not going to go there mm. when it looks at motivation she looks at all the things that will uh enable enable you to be motivated to take that path and I started to look at it from the point of view of mindset and Carol Dweck that you would know about has talked about fixed and growth mindsets. Yeah. so I sort of delve into that. Then I looked at um, domain expertise and I thought, well, you can tell people to know their subject area, obvious. So I thought about, well, what, what enables you to get better at something? And there's a lot of science now about deliberate practice. So, you know, um, that whole uh, 10,000 hours idea, but it's not actually about 10,000 hours. It's about thinking about the way that you practice something to get it better. So there's these great examples of golf, for example, is one of these analogies they use all the time, that when you go out, um, when Tiger Woods is practising, he's not practising the stuff he's good at, he's practising the stuff he's not good at, and he's not practising when he's actually playing competitively, He dedicates time to make, to just go over and over and over to make sure that thing that he's doing. And he has someone who's observing him to give him advice on the thing that he can't see that he's doing wrong during that practice. So there's this whole, this lovely science now that teases out how you get better at something and how you become the best at something. And then the other part of it is these skills and behaviours, and I mentioned those before. So there's a lot of talk about you know resilience and adaptability and curiosity and experimentation and, as I said before, your how you deal with risk, how you deal with uncertainty, being disciplined. So all that stuff. So I tried to give people these are the sorts of things to think about when you're thinking about creativity. And then I went to the next stage and thought, well, what's limiting that? And if someone had said to me when I started this idea six years ago, you know, what's the thing that you've got to think about when you don't want to be creative? I would have said, oh, well, in curiosity and staying open to ideas, you ask me now, in it's sleep, get eight hours sleep. And all the science now that's coming out about sleep, there's some rare creatures like Kevin Rudd who said he'd get three hours sleep a night. Well, that worked for you, didn't it, <laughs> right? But it, like the fact that the science is telling us now If you get sleep, you get enough sleep and you get enough good sleep, it clears out the toxins in your brain. It helps you with your memory retention, which then leads to cognitive brain health, which then leads to reduced stress, which then leads to reduced dementia. Like there's this lovely story now that these neuroscientists have come up and and really shown through all the amazing sort of technology and scanning they can do now, that sleep. And then you lead your next thing about thinking about creating conditions around creativity. So get some good sleep. Think about the way, you know, we use these mobile phones and the the addiction that is happening with this stuff now and the science that's now coming out around restorative benefits of being in nature, The, the really rigorous science that's coming out that says... If you detach yourself from these bloody things these mobile phones and go into nature and they're you know the, the Finns and the Koreans and the Japanese are, are doing all this amazing science around even 15 minutes a day without a phone just outside in nature something triggers something in the brain and helps with your learning and then helps with all the other things that need to happen after that you know in terms of sleep so there's all this stuff and then there's all this science around meditation. Now you don't have to just sit there like a guru and try and meditate because I know a lot of people struggle with meditation. But if you think about the foundation of that, it's finding a quiet place to just breathe. Okay, and all the cognitive benefits that come out of that. So there's all this stuff. Then you look at the physical environment you sit in, and Is it inspiring? Is it enabling you to learn? And I've got these amazing things around me which you can't see, which, you know, things like my Paul Hawkins quote that try and inspire me to hang in there and keep going. But I also know that the science is telling me get eight hours sleep. And when I was doing the book, I deliberately put myself through this. I got the eight hours sleep. I'd get up at the same time every morning. I'd have something that enable... I'm in an apartment block, but something that allowed me to go outside and just touch something green and I have pot plants that enable me to do that I would have a relatively healthy breakfast you know I would take breaks every the idea is you take a break every 90 90 minutes so 15 minutes every 90 minutes you get up and you move because your body needs to move we're not used to sitting down we weren't born to sit down so buy a stand-up desk if you have to then I would have an hour Outside at the end of the day. So I'd work solidly from eight, having the breaks all the way through till about three, have a proper break, and then set up something so that I knew what I was going to be doing the next day. So Hemingway would write half a sentence and then he wouldn't finish it. So that as soon as he would get up the next day, he knew he would finish that sentence. That's quite a famous story. So I'd do the same thing. I'd go for my one hour walk outside during COVID because it was allowed down the beach, not think about anything come back, do whatever I needed to do, get ready. You know, you know what we need to do to get our brain ready for sleep again. You're priming the brain. You're not using anything with a a blue light behind it. You're having something where your body temperature goes down, so whether it's a hot shower so you get into the cold so your body temperature goes down. You're in a dark room. So I did that and came out of it the other end thinking, all right, there's something about habit and routine and so I start reading about all the things that that embed habit. And there's again there's lots of science behind the understanding the cue and the trigger that means you'll go and have a tub of Sarah Lee ice cream instead of not mm. having a tub yeah. of Sarah Lee. So what's the cue to having a cigarette or whatever it is and understanding that and trying to work out you know what's going on behind that and replacing that with something else that was maybe more, you know, conducive. So it's just working through all this stuff and all of it went back to pointing to cognitive health, pointing to respecting our brains and respecting this extraordinary organ that we have that is so abused by most people and then thinking, how on earth can we be creative if we were disrespecting our bodies and our brains? Of course, we're not going to be creative. I had a really bad sleep a couple of nights ago because it was so hot, and I was like a, a zombie the next day. And I thought I was overthinking it. I know I knew it was because I hadn't slept well, but boy, I just think of all the years I did all those very long hours and expected to be able to perform the next day. And I thought, like, really? Like, And I'm probably the healthiest and the smartest I've ever been (laughs) purely because I've had a good eight hours sleep, you know? Like, it's just thinking about all that stuff. So the book very much is trying to get people to respect that and respect the science behind that. And there's a few, like, interesting things along the way. Daniel Pink has done some really interesting stuff around decision making at different times of the day and he talks about you know restorative time and but he has these great case studies about if you're in front of a lawyer for your parole case before lunch versus after lunch have you heard this stuff no. so if you go before lunch and he's had his morning and the lawyer he let's assume it's a he has had his uh morning tea you're more likely to get your parole go through as opposed to in the afternoon when he's tired and grumpy and hasn't had lunch. So the time of the day makes a difference to the lawyer and whether you'll get parole or not. Most accidents in hospitals happen in the afternoon when the, the everyone's tired and grumpy and, or they're transitioning, you know, to the new handover really shifting, stuff. Yeah. Like it's this stuff that we just take for granted. And, of course, I kept thinking creativity, creativity, creativity. Like, how can we come up with good, smart decisions if we're just completely neglecting our body and our brain? It's some lovely science now about the two forms of creativity. So the spontaneous form of creativity, why do we get great ideas when we're sitting on the toilet or having a shower? Um, not at the same time. Um, and then the analytical <laughs> problem solving. That's a horrible thought. You're going to have that in your mind now forever. Um, and the analytical problem solving. And the analytical problem solving is very much about Um, front brain cognitive logic working through an idea there's all these tools that we can use now in terms of clarifying problems and ideating and developing the ideas etc and then the spontaneous stuff and there's been this lovely research around they were able to check that spontaneous creativity does exist it's not just a figment of our imagination you know all those lovely myths about you know, the apple falling on yeah. Newton and suddenly he understood gravity and all that sort of stuff. So it, that interesting bit why is it when you're walking the dog or you're washing the dishes or having the shower, why do we come up with those ideas? Because you've turned this machine at the front of your head off and you're in the default, default mode, just imagining you're allowing that. And if, you, if you're smart enough, you'll take a notebook with you because yeah. you'll come up with all those brilliant ideas. Um, a friend of mine has a, a waterproof marker in his shower and he, can, he comes up with an idea he writes on the glass. So it, there's this wonderful stuff that comes out and, I you know, I think if we can just make people aware of all this and try and put the, you know, the puzzle together so they can see the links between all these things. And I think about it from the point of view of, just human history, we've been leading towards this. We're still evolving and and possibly we're not evolving anymore because we're allowing technology and everything to stop us evolving now, but we've been evolving up until this point. There's a reason our brain has formed the way it has and we're stifling all that. You know, there's a reason we have this lovely science about the three phases of creativity now where you've got your prefrontal cognitive thinking, thinking, evaluating Brain part, and then you've got the default part that says, "Ah, oh, relax, you know, just let it go." And then you've got this thing called the salience, which connects the two. And through doing these scans, they realised default and cognitive are never on at the same time. They can they can't exist at the same time. One has to turn off, and the other one has to go has to turn on. And then one turns off, and the, and the salience is the thing that keeps it keeps us being able to logically work through a process and then come up with some ideas. So. You just think we've been leaning towards that for so long, hundreds of thousands or 200,000 years, I think, of, you know, homo sapien, so let's use it. Let's use it the right way and not stifle it by, and this is no judgment on people who drink or smoke and all that stuff, but all the science is showing us anything that that limits the brain's ability to do something, lack of sleep, um, the science behind drug abuse for young children from the age, you know, up until about 24, your brain is still forming. That's mm-hmm. the stuff that really scares the pajikis out of me. The kids are making decisions around drug use and alcohol and making changes to the brain that they may not be able to remedy later on, because it's still a forming, a forming organ. So think about that stuff. And that's the stuff, that's the fear I have that we're not taking responsibility once we know this yeah. and making the changes that we need. Um, I'm not saying don't have a drink. And if you're European, of course, you have a glass of red wine in a social setting. It's the social stuff. The wine is, you know, doesn't really mean much at all. They think it's the one, or they think it's the social environment as opposed to the fact that it's the wine. Yeah. You know, they don't be able to prove it's the antioxidants or anything, have they? Because, you know, it comes that, that argument goes back and forth all the time. But you look at the Blue Zone, you know that Blue Zone stuff. So the Blue Zone is looking at there's seven countries around the world or seven regions around the world where people live very healthily over a hundred, and they've got the smarts and they can move around and they're and just Sardinia, blue.
1: Yeah, I know he's one of them. Slovenia, isn't it?
0: Yeah, exactly. Yes, near our country. That's right. And Okinawa and a yeah. few other places. And I think the the other one is uh, Salt Lake City because it's the Roman right. population yeah looked at. And there's all these factors around they eat, you know, the Mediterranean diet, they drink but very small amounts socially, they move. The Okinawans get up and down, Those, you know, get up and down and sit up and down all the time, like 30,000 times a day they're up and down. The Sardinians climb up those, you know, stone yeah. stairwells every day they don't have lifts or cars. They value something around faith, which is interesting, So there's something beyond, you know, whether it's a religious thing or not, but it's a faith, it's a family-based social environment. Um, And you look at that and you think, gee, that sounds pretty good, you know. I I wouldn't mind having a lifestyle like that. So why do we resist that, you know? And so there's some really interesting stuff around that. But the the key to that Blue Zone stuff is more about that they maintain their cognitive health and not seeing signs of dementia. And there's such a fear around us all moving towards you now the figures that come out but I wonder now whether because we're so aware now that we need to eat fish and you know not abuse our bodies and keep learning until we're old and stay you know young at heart etc cetera, etc cetera, try and reduce mm. your cholesterol so we know all this stuff so let's let's sort of enact it and to me again there's this basis of yet again at that intersection of science and creativity all the time I look at my mum you know who ended up passing like 92 from dementia it was really the last six years of her life that were really hard and really in the end it was the last two years of her life once you know they say once you fall and do your hip that's it yeah. you, know, you know you go back home again but she lived in her home she had her family around her she was a stubborn woman and i just think christ i hope i'm like her when i'm that age you know a fighter and you, you know i think about the stuff that she'd gone through you know just to get to where she was you know at my age she'd had kids she'd migrated she'd lived through a war and a depression like i had nothing <laughs> like you know a pandemic yeah, well, okay, at least I've had a pandemic, all right.
1: <laughs> you can put well, that well, on your resume there.
0: <laughs> I survived a pandemic. But it's just that that interesting thing now I wonder really because of the awareness around dementia, whether the next, you know, the time I can get it, I haven't had it yet hopefully. <laughs> you be got to tell me something different at the end of this no.
1: interview.
0: But by the time I get to 80, I've made enough changes Because we're aware of it now and and maybe that fear around dementia shouldn't actually be there. We should really be thinking about aged care and how we make life easier for people to stay at home rather than isolating them. And, again, there's these lovely little experiments, isn't there, that, you know, that that lovely show the ABC put on around young children going into aged care facilities Mm. Well, dear Freddie, of course that was going to be a good thing for both of them. But we had to do a whole show about it, didn't we? And we had to do a whole analytical quantifiable test to make sure that, you know, no-one got hurt. Well, really? But, you know, that's got a whole wave of new interesting ideas happening out there and certainly the the reading I've done about art-based approaches... In aged care, there's some really interesting stuff happening around keeping people active through art and dance. Now, let's do that in all our lives, obviously. But I just feel like there's enough happening there, and that's what I tried to capture in the book. Getting back to the thing, opportunity you gave me to plug this book, (laughs) I tried to capture all that stuff and really show that it's actually not going to be that hard. And if you can understand the advantages of Taking these sort of shifts and, and making the sort of changes that you need, the advantage outweighs any small-scale problem you might have, or from actually making that change. So, yeah, that's it. That's that's the the whole point of it.
1: Well, yeah. I've, I, I loved hearing about all that. What what struck me was that all of the things that you were talking about about intergenerational living, eating well, all the things we love them when we do them. We embrace them. They're part of who we are as humans. When we're part of a community, having fun, talking, discussing, learning things, being challenged, looking after people, eating healthy, walking up, down, we're great. But we're told to do this now by exercise your 45 minutes, you know, at extreme intensity in a gym. Drive to the gym, get in there, wait for your class, (laughs) you know, whatever it is, pay your 50 bucks a week to do it and then... That's your exercise. Then you go off and you go to the organic supermarket where you spend 200 bucks, and, you know, things are wrapped in plastic or whatever and then you cook it at home and then you're doing that alone after a big day at work. And our current society just doesn't allow us to live the optimal way, whereas Sardinia, uh, Okinawa, these places that do it, that you live live for a very long time and it's not just quantity, it's quality of life too, they Like the like dementia, they, they're fit until mm. old age and they've got community around them. Mm. There's something special about that and people call it, well, where's the progress? It's a simple life. But that's what I think we need to strive for. Yes, yes we want to be able to have scientists that cure disease and, mm. you know, it's cool to have someone going up to Mars and all of that. And we need that. It's mm. it's great. But we also need to go back to simplicity
0: and, and minimalism, yeah. I, I think there's a really, I mean, there is a strong movement around minimalism now, isn't there? And and it's not people being, um, fr- what's the word, frugal? It's actually making decisions to just not have. I've, I've mo- had to move quite a few times in the last five years for various reasons, and I came to the point where I was, you know, not even unpacking boxes, and I thought, oh, you've got to be kidding, memory. you have mm. just cutting these boxes. So this last move, it was if I had more than two, of something. Now I'm not talking about books or shoes, you know, obvious, you know, spoons. <laughs> but if I had more than two of something, I would give it away because I just didn't, it, unless it would break. You know, I had yeah. like four kettles. Like who needs
1: four kettles?
0: Yeah. So three of them went away. And so it's just that I think you've got to make a conscious effort though. And and there's I feel like there's an awake thing and maybe it's just the people that, that surround me. Um, and the people I end up intersecting with, like yourself, it feels like, a, a, you know, like a, a, a no-brainer, doesn't it? And yet of the people out there that are resisting this, you've got to get back to first principles and understand and understand why, and it's they've got themselves trapped into the sort of mortgage, you know, that whole thing of what they think they need, et cetera, et cetera. I, I feel like there's a shift happening, and even home ownership now is not something. I know we hang on to it like but there's a generation that will not be able to afford homes and that's clearly not going to change. At some point that is going to shift the market and I don't know what the outcome's going to be. I don't know whether that means it will accept rentals. Like, you know, I stayed with friends in Amsterdam and they all rent, you know, and they have these wonderfully secure agreements that enable them to rent and make changes and they can't get kicked out at the the slightest little hiccup. You know, and Canada's got some amazing rental things that enable the rentee to have power over the renter. Now, I'm not anti, you know, people having an investment property and renting it out, but it's just that equality that, that is yeah. required. And so I feel like there's shifts that are going to happen, but it's how badly we want it. And in the end, I, I feel like climate change is a driver, gender equity is a driver, women's rights these are the themes that seem to be coming out in this I know we're only two years into this decade but you know that seems to be the three themes that are coming through and I'm going to hang on to those ones and drive them as fast as I can and as hard as I can and then hopefully the next wave will take on the next series of issues that need to be picked up and uh, we can share these I mean you're well and truly into the education stuff so you will be looking at things to foster young people and foster their resilience and their adaptability and their creativity. So let's drive that one through you. So, you know, it's just, yes, a vision for vibrant and sustainable communities. That's uh, that's my vision. I
1: love, uh, an amazing vision. Um, we're in an information battle. We're in a, a time of so much coming in that we have to do and have to worry about and... Yeah. What I love about the work you're doing is that you've realised to get the big, big changes around the world, we need individual and personal change. That's, that's a, a
0: really lovely way of putting it. Actually, it's you know that whole act local, think global. That's a really nice way of make the individual change, and we'll see them, we'll see the movement happen. And you know, one one part of me wants to um, try and bottle some of that stuff that's happening with these the young people and the climate change stuff. Like, I just see this extraordinary spirit and just the smarts. Like, a couple of the kids were doing their the VCE and organising demonstrations. And I thought, my God, you can multitask. Like, how hard is VCE? And you're yeah. out organising demos. Good on you. And, and they've been touched by politics already, you know, because they were criticised. If that's not a driver for them to get into politics, a lot of them are going to have a good ten years under their belt of you know really good active experience before they go into it. I, I just I'm just can't be I can't be more optimistic. Um, I had to do some work on global citizenship the other day, and I looked at the um, there's this wonderful group called High Results who do these who support young people to, to put videos together on. Um, issues of interest to them and I was watching those videos and I just thought, you know, they were picking up bullying and, you know, all sorts of things that we keep talking about, but they were actually putting these really lovely, simple messages together and very effective. So, you know, next time people criticise are they X or Y, what are they, that generation millennials? You know, under 21, for example, <laughs> under 21 yeah. years old, and they've got, you know, they've been born into such a different world and I, I, I am very optimistic about I'm not optimistic about the problems they're going to have to be dealing with but I tell you they've got some spunk to them that uh,
1: they're gives not you courage. I think they realize that the world they live in is a bit of a, a farce I mean, at yeah. times and it's like you're telling us to care about a b and c yet yep. you do an xyz what's going on there yeah do, and they're
0: and then, calling it out and yep. they're
1: calling it out and they're rebelling and we say that that's wrong but then is it i mean if you see something's broken why join it and i think a few of them are starting to learn yeah. that and, and as adults as people that are entrenched in that i think our job and role is to harness it and to you know join them and and not Absolutely. say hey live mm. the way we did please even though mm. we're complaining about things or wishing that things could be different or knowing mm. that things need to change as as not just you and me just a generation mm. yet Yes. And we say do what we did though you know Say for a house, spend a million dollars now on your first home, it doesn't no. It doesn't make Absolutely. sense. So no. <laughs> I, I, I do love that sentiment. There is opportunity, optimism. Uh, we've got a future ahead of us. It isn't doom and gloom unless we make it so.
0: Unless we make it so. And, and to seek out the good news stories because mm. it's not going to be on Facebook anymore, is it? No. It's,
1: it's gonna, no, it's I think I actually saw they, they made a deal. But, you know, as you say, mm. what's it going to look like? From here, yeah. who's gonna win in this situation? And it's not the little ones, it's not the little guys, is it? It's it's gonna be the big wigs uh that And as problem- you said
0: before, it's about valuing the knowledge and paying for it, like yeah. valuing yes. you know, the guardians and the yep. women's agendas and the all those other, you know, things that I plug into that yep. give me hope that uh I'm staying relatively off top
1: of things yeah start oh. putting if money is the the thing that makes the world go round, start putting money where it should go in, no and investing yeah. in the right things um and realizing you can change a lot with where you actually what you pay for i've got uh, a final question for you maria and it's the name of the podcast moments of clarity <laughs> can you share with us uh, and you've shared many of these already but um a moment of clarity that you've had recently
0: had one which is um I'm thinking about how I want to spend well I've, I have written about how I want to spend the next 30 years if I'm around for let's just well, I've got good genes so let's say I'm around for another 20 25 years um how do I want to spend that and I've done some I, I won't share it but I've done some quite intense thinking about all this in terms of where I want to spend my time and energy and devote things devote that time too and I've started working on the next five years because I thought okay so what's where I want to be when I'm 65 and what is that going to look like and how am I going to get there and I had a lovely moment of clarity the other day which is I want to plant trees I want to make sure that I contribute somehow I mean I can minimize them how much I use my car and I can get a you know, hopefully retrofit a house and you know, even if it's a rental property, like can do all that stuff. I can stop eating meat, etc. But I want to plant trees. And so that has shifted a whole lot of things around where I'm going to live, who I'm going to be with, who's going to help me do it, what are we going to do with the trees? But I I want to suck up that carbon and uh the retrospective carbon that's been in there that's helped me i mean i've benefited from living in a western society with all that stuff so it's my 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 time now to start paying for that so that's been really interesting because you make a simple decision like that listen i can go out and do some volunteering i can join a land care group etc that's everyone can do that but if i'm serious about really doing that what does that mean and that moment of clarity which is i want to get my hands dirty and do that has uh really started to shift how i'm going to Behave in the next few years so little moments like that i read this thing ages ago that um older people particularly women like putting their hands in soil after a certain age mm. because it replenishes their estrogen that there's hormones in the soil and i and i have really as i've said a few times i'm in a small apartment but i've got a garden and i'm planting trees and i the meditative you know hours can go by just replanting pots and I'm thinking yeah. oh there's something there's something to this isn't there so that was my little my little moment at clarity about like how can I affect change well I can do something that's going to be benefit to me and I can do I can leave a legacy of some sort so talk to me in five years time <laughs> I'll be able to tell you how we're doing
1: I might uh, plant some with you one day.
0: Oh,
1: um, very nice. <laughs> I, I, I I usually would just stop there normally and just leave it at that. But what, I, I do, I love that. I love the thing about stopping doing things, uh, stop eating meat. So it's all great and all wonderful, but mm. what's in it in the heart and planting trees is you're giving back. You mentioned the legacy, you're mentioning all that. I think that's a great way to look at it, that when you are looking to make a difference, don't just look at, all the things you can stop and all the ways you've caused harm because that's not your fault necessarily. We're in that society. But how can you actually look to make changes that are going to live beyond you? And that's yeah. that's a beautiful sentiment to finish on, Maria. So thanks for sharing that. Thank you. People are going to want to find out much more about you now. So where can they explore <laughs> your work and, and find out and, and contact you?
0: Uh, So if they're interested in the creativity stuff, then www.thecreativecatalyst.com.au. And if they're just interested in having a chat, because I do a fair bit of mentoring too. So at the moment I'm working more with women in their 20s and 30s who are just wanting to have chats about things, particularly if they're interested in Churchill Fellowships and how they might progress that. They can just get me on LinkedIn, Maria Simonelli. I do a fair bit of work with non-profits and helping them sort of work through their... This is volunteering as much as... I get paid to do this as well, but I've spent a fair bit of time with a couple of charities lately over the last few years, just getting them to rethink their strategies and how to progress their objectives. So I do that as a volunteer as well. So if you're interested in that sort of stuff, yeah, get me on LinkedIn. But if you want to buy the book, oh, my God, it's in all good bookstores <laughs> and bad bookstores.
1: <laughs> Amazing. Have you always wanted to say that?
0: <laughs> you know what I've always wanted to say? Can I say it? Yeah. I, want to, I want to get a dog and call it karma so that when I, when it's down the beach running away from me, I can say bad karma, bad karma. I'm <laughs> right here.
1: I love it. <laughs> Do that. Put that in the thirty-year plan. I think. <laughs>
0: that's, that's right. Oh, good karma. Good karma. <laughs> oh, and we're going a bit crazy now. And the, dog to, dog. The, and the dog will
1: behave in the in that way. Behave, right. um, we are going crazy. It's been a while, but it's been amazing. You've, I've had a a day of of I've had a tough day, and. What you've done to, to revitalise that day and this conversation has done to revitalise that, has been amazing. So I Thank am you. thrilled to have had this conversation. I've loved every Thank minute of
0: so it. Thank you so much. So lovely to meet you and I'm sure we'll be in touch.
1: If you enjoyed the conversation today, please subscribe, share with your friends and family and leave a review. If you would like to contact me, provide feedback, or have access to someone you believe could be a great guest on the podcast, you can contact me on Instagram or Facebook at Moments of Clarity Podcast, or on Twitter at Barney MOC. You can also email me on Moments of Clarity Podcast at gmail.com. My name is Barney, and thank you for joining me on Moments of Clarity.